One of the things I've been doing uh, as a result of the pandemic is actually digging more into world news, less into our own nation's news. And one of the interesting things I came across recently is that in certain parts of the world, the monkey population is exploding. Uh, and a lot of that, they think, is due to the pandemic. So many people have been inside their homes um, that monkeys have kind of taken over certain places that have been domesticated by, by man. And the problem is, is they're becoming a danger, a danger to the inhabitants of those cities, but also a danger to themselves. You can imagine that as car traffic increases, uh, a lot of monkeys are, are getting harmed and, and even killed. So the authorities in these places are trying to come up with a, a good way to relocate these monkeys to the wild, and, and this is what they're using. You might be familiar with this. It's known as a hand trap. It's a humane way to capture a monkey so that you can net them and then uh, transport them back out to the jungle. If you are familiar with this, you understand how it works, but if you've never seen this before, it's, it's a very simple principle. They take a coconut, they drill a hole in it, they tie that coconut to a nearby tree, they stick a banana through that hole, and then they just wait. That coconut's enticing to the monkeys, they reach in to grab the banana and they can't get their hand out. They're, they're trapped. Now, they're not physically kept there by anything um, because all they would have to do is let go and they could just run away. The problem is, is that the monkeys just won't let go. Now, before you start condemning monkeys as being these stupid animals, the truth of the matter is, is we kind of do the same things to ourselves. Uh, and there's a whole variety of things in this life that just bug us or that might undermine the things that we're trying to accomplish or the things that God's trying to accomplish through us. And much like a monkey caught in a hand trap, a lot of times the solution is right in front of us. All we would need to do is let go. Unfortunately, we don't. Now, as we consider this reality of our lives, there's something that we have to talk about that really holds us back, that kind of traps us. And it's the law. And I want to say this very carefully because God's law serves a very good purpose in our lives, and that will be one of the topics of future study. But if you misunderstand how God's law works, and if you misunderstand how God's law uh, is supposed to be applied to our lives, the way in which God actually created it to serve us as part of his creation, it can become like this hand trap. There's things about the law, the way we interpret it, the way we want to apply it, the way that sometimes we try to carry its guilt and curse around, it traps us. And again, the solution's right there in front of us. We need to just let go of these things. Unfortunately, oftentimes we don't. This all comes to head in our study of sanctification. And so what we're doing is we're revisiting this letter that Paul wrote to Galatians. Again, two weeks ago in Fort, I was able to uh, preach on this. And some of you, I'm, I'm sure, uh, saw that lesson. But for all of us that didn't, um, this is not only a good chance to revisit the whole topic of what Paul's trying to teach the Galatians, but it reinforces not only that lesson, but gives us a crucial element in understanding sanctification. And it has to do with the way the Galatians were applying the law. They just wouldn't let go. This is what Paul says to them. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. One of the things that we almost immediately need to do is make sure we understand that Paul uses the terminology law in several ways. And the only way to fully understand what he intends is by to go to the context 
and to see specifically what he's speaking to. And sometimes, much like the lesson today, we find that he's using the law in several ways. Well, all this stems back to the time when uh, the nation of Israel came to Mount Sinai as they were on the exodus from the land of, Is- uh, from the land of Egypt to ultimately the land of Canaan. Camping there, God gave them three laws. Most of us are familiar with the fact that God gave them the Ten Commandments, the moral law. And that's one law that has a unique use that has application for all of mankind for all time. It's the other two sets of laws that sometimes become confusing. God gave to Israel also their civil laws and their ceremonial laws. And I put up there only until, uh, for Israel until the time of Messiah. So it was specific to the nation of Israel. They were a newly independent nation. They had no clue how to rule themselves. So God gave them the civil laws. That was to govern their social lives. They were also now the covenant nation of God. God had set up this promise with Israel, and their part was they would become the nation of Messiah. And so to govern their worship lives and to help them in this covenant, God established the worship laws, the ceremonial laws. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, another early church, he describes for them the purpose of those two sets of laws. They were to maintain a constant watch and hope for the coming of Messiah, which means that once Christ came, these laws were no longer in effect. They could serve a good purpose if used appropriately, but God no longer required it of Israel, and he never required it of anybody else. This becomes a crucial point, the linchpin of understanding this lesson, if you will, because as Paul speaks to these people, he has to cover a lot of ground again. Again, this might be a bit redundant, but the the review's good. Uh, I find it good for myself. Uh, And I would actually encourage you, if you have time this week, go to these sections in the book of Acts. Uh, Because both on the first and second missionary journeys of Paul, this deep relationship with these Galatian churches was established. Chapter 13, and then the end of 15 and 16, describe his work there. And it's not one congregation, it's several congregations in the region of Galatia. The problem became is somewhere between the time that Paul and the other missionaries did their work in these cities, a problem developed false teachers were infiltrating these congregations and were teaching them something completely different than the truth of the gospel. And that's what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write about and speak to. In fact, if you go to the very opening chapter of Galatians, he calls it a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. There were also other things uh, these false teachers were saying. Paul had no authority. What he taught was wrong. They shouldn't be listening to him. And basically, they were offering them a hybrid religion between Christianity and Judaism, which really took them backwards, not forwards. Again, you may have seen this clip before, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page, and this will help us to understand what the Holy Spirit has Paul addressing in this letter and in this lesson to the Galatians. Galatians is a book where we get to see a different side of Paul. He has been pushed and challenged, and when he's writing this book, he is angry. So why is he so upset? For close to two years, he had traveled through the area where he proclaimed the good news about Jesus, planted many churches, and lived out the power of the Holy Spirit. This missionary journey marked the beginning of a major transition in the church. For the first time, countless Gentiles became followers of Jesus. But despite all of Paul's successes, he has gone through some pretty intense persecution, including once where he received a public stoning to the point where they thought he was dead. But that isn't why Paul's angry in this letter. He's angry because a group of false teachers have been coming in behind him and undoing a lot of the hard work that he had done. 
they were leading these Galatian churches astray. So who were these false teachers and what was it that they were teaching? To understand this situation better, let's look back at the close and yet complex relationship between Christianity and Judaism and how they each viewed a group we know as Gentiles. In the first century, Judaism viewed Gentiles as unclean sinners and contact with them was unacceptable. Because of this, Jews would keep a distance to them so as not to become unclean themselves. However, there was a provision for Gentiles who recognized the God of Israel and who wanted to worship him, but it wasn't easy. These Gentiles needed to commit fully to the Jewish lifestyle. What did this mean? This meant that they needed to first be baptized, then the males would need to get circumcised, and then they would need to follow the laws of Moses, especially the food laws and the festivals. These requirements were too much for many Gentiles, so very few fully converted to Judaism. Some Gentiles, however, took a middle way. They recognized the God of Israel and were baptized, but didn't want to go through with the circumcision requirement. These Gentiles were called God-fearers, and though they attended synagogues and were friendly toward the Jews, from a Jewish perspective, they were still considered unclean. This all changed with Jesus. After his death and resurrection, the disciples of Jesus were empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim his message to everyone around them. They understood that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Savior of Israel, and that he was the one to whom everything in the Old Testament was ultimately pointing. Jesus had now set them free from the burden of following the sacrifices and the ceremonial works of the law of the Old Covenant. The only thing required to make things right with God was faith in Jesus. These first Christians were Jewish, and initially they only thought to proclaim this good news of their Messiah to other Jews. After all, they had been waiting for the Messiah to come for a long time. Through their proclamation of the good news about Jesus, Many Jews were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and became Christians. Unfortunately, the majority refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. They chose instead to continue to follow their Old Testament laws and traditions rather than become followers of Jesus. With that, things between Jews and Christians started to become tense, but there was one thing that made it even greater. God began calling the Christians to do something bold and completely countercultural to bring the good news about Jesus to the Gentile world. As they stepped out in faith and obedience, many Gentiles became followers of Jesus and joined their community of believers. As time went on, so many accepted the faith that Gentiles were starting to outnumber Jewish believers in the church. As more Gentiles became Christians, some of the Jewish Christians started to become upset. Even after they became followers of Christ, they continued to hold to their traditional Jewish view of keeping themselves separate from Gentiles. Now they were to just accept them? What would the rest of their Jewish community think? They feared that they might get rejected or even persecuted for being too friendly toward Gentiles. So what did they do? Out of fear, they compromised the gospel message. They decided that faith in Jesus alone was not enough to have a right relationship with God. They taught that righteousness before God was earned through faith in Jesus plus doing the works of the law. They required Gentiles who wanted to become followers of Jesus to go through all the Jewish laws of conversion. In other words, Gentiles must convert to Judaism first 
in order to become followers of Jesus. This is why these false teachers are called the circumcision group or Judaizers. So what did these Judaizers do next? After Paul had planted a church in a city and then moved on to the next location, they would come in after him and attack Paul's credibility. They claimed that he was not even a true apostle, but was a false teacher who taught them an incomplete gospel message. They accused him of proclaiming an easy gospel to the Gentiles for the sake of getting a lot of converts. However, he was leaving them as unclean God-fearers. The Judaizers would then teach this new church what they called the real gospel message, what Paul didn't tell you. They had a strong influence in some of these early churches, turning new Christians to what Paul in this letter calls a different gospel. So why was Paul angry? Because Jesus had given the Galatians the greatest gift in the world. They were justified through faith in him and they were throwing it all away. They were trying to earn his favor through fruitless works rather than accepting the one and only path to salvation. Now that you know some of this background and how the Judaizers were compromising the gospel message, how does it help you when you now read the book of Galatians? What is Paul's message to the Galatians? And how do we live that message out today? When we truly learn to stand firm in our faith and walk in the freedom God has for us, this is the Galatians effect. So now hopefully you better understand what Paul was up against, what the Galatian churches were up against, and what he was trying to help them uh, work through this false teaching of the Judaizers. Uh, you have to understand, and there's something that uh, all of this information helps us and points us to is something that we discussed in the, or, or read in the uh, epistle lesson in context. Um, the Galatians were very immature in their faith. I might even go so far as they were kind of wishy-washy. Here they had the gospel. These false teachers come in with a whole different teaching. They jump on that uh, wagon, and they're all good with that. And, and Paul recognizes that this immaturity of faith and, and the, kind of this fickleness amongst them requires an extra effort. And the Holy Spirit has him uh, make sure he speaks to that in this lesson. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but in our epistle lesson, almost everything spoke to what we just saw in the video. But then there's this paragraph right before our main lesson today where, where Paul talks about them abusing the freedom uh, um, that they have been given in Christ. And, and that wasn't the problem. That wasn't the false doctrine. In fact, they were on the other side of it. Here's what Paul is doing. Is he, he's so concerned about these people. He has a deep and loving relationship with these people. As he starts to explain to them what their freedom truly means, he also recognizes there could be an overreaction uh, to being set free from the law. Uh, and I think even in our own lives, there's, there's times where we have struggled with that. After all, if Christ has paid for all of our sins, uh, somewhere deep inside of us, somewhere the devil's tempting us, well, go ahead and sin. It's, it, it's already paid for. And, of course, God loves you. You can pretty much get away with whatever you want. Here's, here's what it comes down to is, is when it comes to the law, there's a proper place in sanctification. And to whet your appetites, there, there will be a future lessons on how to properly apply the law. And there's uh, sometimes where you can have way too much respect for it, and then there are times, as in the epistle lesson, where you might have no respect for it at all. And the church is filled with a history of uh, denominations and teachers who would vacillate from one extreme to the other. And, and so our study of sanctification helps us to, to hone in or to focus on how to properly use God's law. Um, but hopefully you remember last week's lesson, it should never be our motivation. It isn't what sanctification about, is about. We're going to have a lesson, too, that talks specifically about what makes a work good. And it isn't just the doing of the work. 
It's, it's what be, is behind that. And, and Paul's touching on all of these things when he, he wants to make sure they understand that their abuse by making the new Christians observe the ceremonial laws has a touch point with the moral law. And while the ceremonial laws no longer have any application for our lives, the moral law does. It, it should at least put up a red flag that there are so many things that might lead us into a confusion as to how God might want us to use his law. And so what Paul does to help them in a simple way is to explain to them where this all comes together in the area of sanctification. He does it by laying out this simple formula. He says, walk by the Spirit. And so you understand, actually it's translated as live, but the word itself means to walk. It literally means to take step after step. It's used in a figurative way to describe your way through life. So when you're speaking to Christians, the way to apply this is your Christian life should resemble, and then the important thing is also to understand not just the word Paul uses, but the way in which he renders it. And, and sometimes I know uh, grammar can get a little thick for us, but especially with this word, it's vital. And there's three things about it. Uh, the first of all, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, actually is in the imperative, and that means it's a command. This isn't just a suggestion from Paul to the Galatians. It's a command of God. There's not an option to this. It's not like we can stand there and go, huh, I have a choice. Either I can do things God's way or I could do things my way. We don't have that choice because we are going to be talking about in sanctification a choice being given back to us, and that's not one of them. It's not my way or making myself God can supersede everything that God has taught me. The second thing you should understand is it's in the present tense. And that's very important to understand. This language has such precision. And what the present tense tells us is this is an ongoing action. It's never completed. Now, that, that should hopefully ring true in your ears. Sanctification is never a completed action. Everything we studied about justification is done. Sin is paid for. Christ proved that when he rose on Easter Sunday. But this walking by the Spirit, this living by the Spirit, is an ongoing process. And we should understand with every ongoing process, there's challenges to it. And that's what Paul is addressing with the Galatians. And then the third thing is, it's in the active voice. And again, I know it's very grammatical, but that says as much as the word itself says. Because when something's put into an active voice, it means we have the power to choose. You have the power to choose to live by the Spirit. Now, I just got done saying, that doesn't mean, okay, if I think my way's better than God, that's my choice. That's not what this word is saying. What this word actually says is it takes us back in time to before sin corrupted this world. It's as if God plunks us down next to Adam and Eve and we're standing there as God is instructing us how he wants to live out our creation. And having been blessed with free will, God gives us that same choice. You can either choose to follow, you can choose to obey, or you can choose to rebel. That's kind of the sweet spot of sanctification is we're given our spiritual free will back. And so, as with God's first created man and woman, we stand there before holy God and he says, I don't want another animal. I don't want another living object that has to follow a season or an instinct. I want children, and much like our own children, we want them to respond to us out of love, not out of fear, not because mom and dad said so, although sometimes it seems like it gets to that, God says, I want you to follow because you love me. That is, in essence, what sanctification is. God says, I love you 
That's the rescue part. And God says, now, in return, I want you to love me. Here's something else, and this is how it connects up with the lesson we had two weeks ago from this very same book, from this very same chapter. And it has to do with why God in sanctification returns to us our spiritual free will and gives us this choice. Because let's be honest, it's a huge responsibility. He did that once with our first parents, and they bombed terribly. So why on earth would God turn around and then through sanctification give us a choice back? Well, in a few verses after what we're studying today, Paul lists off these nine different Christ-like characteristics, attributes. It's not an exhaustive list, but there are things for which, through sanctification, we can strive for and become the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And there's something simple here that God long ago, for thousands of years, has known that we typically have to learn the hard way. That fruit is always sweeter when it is the product of our own hand. You can go and buy everything you want to eat at the store, but when you put in the time and the energy of raising a garden or tending fruit trees, when you can finally sit down and enjoy that fruit, for some reason it tastes so much better. That's the end goal of sanctification. That first and foremost, God sets us on that path by rescuing us, But then as we want our children to grow and mature, we want them to make adult decisions in their lives, to make good choices, not for our sake, but for their sake. And when they make those good choices, or when in regards to sanctification, make godly choices, there is sweet fruit that is produced that not only brings glory to God, but is also for our good and blessing. So here's what Paul does to make sure that the Galatians don't take this simple yet amazing principle and go way too far to the other side. And he he talks about what happens in this process. Basically, our attitude changes. Uh, It doesn't really say you will not gratify. This word that that Paul uses, you know, it's the tetelestai word. It's the one Christ used on the cross when he said, it's done. It's all paid for. It's a form of that word which literally is a goal. It's the goal of our life. Through sanctification, where at one point we used to want to serve only ourselves, now after the gift of faith, our attitude changes and our motivation changes and our goals change. Where otherwise our sinful hearts would lead us in this direction, through the gift of faith and God's gift of sanctification, we're headed in the opposite direction. And see, this illustration here is what we're eventually going to get to in part of this study is it's not just what you're doing. God doesn't want us motivated by the law. He wants us motivated by the love. And so Paul wants the Galatians to grasp this. The formula is simple. A plus B equals C. After we're given the gift of faith, after we come to trust that God has done everything necessary in order to rescue us, what we call the wide sense of sanctification, added to that is following the Holy Spirit or the narrow sense of sanctification. This is what rescued us, and this is now this being put into action in our lives, and it always, it's written this way in the original language, it always leads to C. That's the only conclusion. You're free. You're not just free from hell. You're not just free from death. That all happens in justification. But you're free from fear. If you really understand this principle, you're free from worry. You're free from so many of the things that this broken world heap upon human beings that just drag their lives down. And that isn't to say that Christians don't experience many of those same feelings, and there's reasons why we do. 
And that's part of what Paul is eventually going to get to in another part of our study. But what we're free is from this compulsion buried deep inside of us of hanging on to things. If only we follow the Spirit's formula. The problem in Galatians was they had an understanding of the gift of faith, but where the sanctified life, where the guiding of the Holy Spirit was meant to produce spiritual fruit, they now substituted the law. It's not only confusing, it's not only a mix of motivations, but this part totally undermines this part. Because what they were saying is is that in order for you to be in that right relationship with God, in order for God to really love you, in order for God to be your parent and you to be a loving child, there's something that you have to do. But that, that doesn't lead to freedom. Paul calls it, you're putting yourself back under the yoke of slavery. Basically, you're enslaving yourselves to the law. It's what drives you. And if you ever try to keep God's law, you realize what a miserable failure you are. You can't. Not only can't it save you, but not a single one of us can ever measure up to the holy life that God created us to be and do. That's one of the beauties of sanctification. Recognizing that Christ has done that for us. Now we can impart, because sanctification is always that process, we can impart be what God created us to be. We can impart enjoy part of what this life was meant to be. The beautiful thing about sanctification is it gives us back, at least in a way, what God had always wanted for us in this world. Not in the permanent sense that it once was, not in the perfect sense, in which it originated, but at least in part we get to enjoy what God always intended for us in this life. And it's a glimpse of that which is to come. That's why I like to call sanctification practicing for heaven, because that's when we will be fully sanctified. Now, God lays this stuff out pretty basically, and maybe you even think I'm over-explaining it, because it's a pretty simple principle, A plus B equals C. And much of God's word is that way. It, it doesn't take a theologian to sit down and read through a section of the Bible and go, huh, what is that all about? I get it. There's parts of it that do require a, a good working knowledge of the languages, but a lot of it is just so straightforward. The problem is, is applying it to our lives. Uh, the problem is, is, is not only embracing the truth, but actually letting that truth become part of who we are. You see, sometimes we have that same problem the monkeys do. We can't let go. There's something deep inside of us that keeps pulling us back, that holds us back. What is it? Why do we keep wanting to go back to God's law? Why do we keep trying to measure up to God's standards on our own? That's what the Galatians were doing. Let's be honest, sometimes we try it in our lives too. Paul tells us what the problem is, the sinful nature. And the way in which he writes this, it shows us this adversarial tension between God's design and what sin has done to us. The Holy Spirit stands in contrast to the sinful nature. Sanctification, the way God has designed our faith to operate, stands in direct opposition of self-righteousness, the very thing that had been reintroduced to the Galatian churches. It's crystal clear what the problem is. It's good versus evil, and we can see it. But knowing and doing are two different things. Maybe the best way to describe this for you is is to actually take you back to the original language and and show you how clearly the Galatians would have got this. And it's it's done with two words, uh, soma and sarx. A soma is 
is uh, the word that was literally used to describe the whole body. Uh, what God had created, the harmonious union between mind and, and spirit and flesh. Sarks, on the other hand, is just talking about our skin and our flesh, and that's the way the language uses it. Over time, soma was almost always used in a positive way, and both can be used figuratively. Soma talks about the goodness and the good man, the new man, which God has recreated. Sarks is always a description of that sinful nature. God created the soma, and Adam's rebellion twisted it into sarks. I hope this makes sense to you. It's what God designed versus what sin has twisted and turned us into. That's why these two are at constant tension. God originally created us to be just this. Well, once sin came to the world, now we're both this. And for a while we were just this, and it was God's gift of faith which restored that. And until the day we die or the Lord comes, we're going to have this constant tension, this contrast within us between the Soma and the Sarks between the godly and the godlessness. That's what Paul's addressing with the Galatians, and that's why he feared that now as he explains the freedom that's been given to him, they may overreact in the other direction. So what Paul wants them to understand is there's a way to fight against this deepness inside of us that hates God and wants to rebel against them. There's a way to encourage the Soma and a way to depress the Sarks. Well, we understand that, and we oftentimes refer to it as the means of grace. When we avail ourselves to the gospel and God's word, the good news of everything God has done for us, and when we participate and make use of the sacraments, remember our baptisms, and, and regularly eat the Lord's body and blood and his supper, these are not only the very tangible and personal ways of God telling us about his eternal love for us, these are the strengtheners of our faith. And the stronger our faith, the more apt we are to live by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, and these are the means through which he strengthens us. And unfortunately, somewhere along the line, it seems as if the Galatians stopped reading their Old Testament Bibles, because everything Paul's teaching them is right there. And when we're not grounded in God's word, we can be led astray very easily. And the latest fads or the latest popular thing is what oftentimes attracts people, and one has to ask, on what basis is any of this actually worth anything? The other thing is, and I think sometimes we don't talk about this nearly enough because we should concentrate on the means of grace, but the other way in which to not only follow the Spirit but then depress this sinful nature, this old Adam, is to know our enemy. And again, let me whet your appetite. We have upcoming lesson uh, which is going to talk more about what our enemy is actually like, this sinful nature within us and how we have to deal with it, and, and how we have to constantly fight against it. And if that wasn't bad enough, we have, we have the sinful world and the devil on that same sideline trying to drag us away from God. And so Paul is giving us the advice to live by the Spirit, but he's also saying there's, there's a way to do that. There, there's ways for you to get out of the Holy Spirit's way so that he can work these things in your lives. And part of that process is to understand that this sinful nature, this old Adam within you, the very sin that you inherit from your fathers, that very essence of nature with which every child is born has to be constantly taken care of. Well, it comes down to the Galatians, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And that's where this all ultimately comes to. See, their misapplication of the ceremonial law then placed them under an obligation of the moral law. 
because they misunderstood their worship laws and these Judaizers were trying to get them to somehow please God with their strange worship life customs, what they were basically saying is, God, I'll be good on my own. I don't need you. It's like saying sanctification sounds like a great idea, but no, thank you. I'll just do this myself. And the truth of the matter is they had basically abandoned the freedom that was given to them through Christ's sacrifice and they were back to trying to save themselves. If you don't think this is very applicable, then let me just ask this. And I keep hearing it over and over again, and it's God's way, I think, of reminding me how important this is. You talk to people about dying, and, and almost without exception, the number one thing you're going to hear from them is, I'm a pretty good person. And, and maybe they are. Maybe they are a pretty good person uh, compared to somebody who's in jail. Uh, compared to a mass murderer, yeah, we're all pretty good people, but we're not what God created. We are not what God designed. We're not holy the way God made us and wants us. And that's the beautiful thing about sanctification. We don't have to stop and go, am I good enough? Have I been good enough for God? God says, no, you haven't, but I'm making you perfect. And I want you to practice that perfection that I give you, and that's the beauty of this topic that we're studying. And I, I know there's parts of it that aren't as easy as others, so let me try and explain today's lesson this way. When Christ died for us, he took all our sins to the cross. He paid for them. They're done. They're gone. So it's not a matter of being good enough, the way the Galatians were thinking. God says, I see you. I see your perfection. As long as we stay in that frame of mind, that trust in God, we're free. Unfortunately, what happens is, and we do this too, much like the Galatians, we keep going back to the law. It's like that ball and chain that keeps dragging us down. We want to measure up to what God created us to be. That's buried deep inside of us because it's part of our creation. The problem is it's frustrating because we can't be that. Of course, everybody wants to try and do it on their own, and God says, no, it doesn't work that way. Trust me. Let the Holy Spirit lead. That's freedom. Or simply put, you got to just let it go. you got to let the law go. That doesn't mean you throw it out. You understand its use, but you let it go. Let me give you this illustration. How many times in your life have you made a decision, not because of what you wanted to do, but because you were worried what somebody was thinking or what they might say about you? How many times have you taken what God designed in you, your deepest burning desires, not the sinful ones, the godly ones, and you chose to set those aside because somebody might look down their nose at you. Somebody might give you one of these. Mm -mm -mm. How often has that happened to us? What we allow is for people to rule our lives when, in fact, God created us to follow him. How many times have you absolutely found yourself at wit's end trying to make somebody else happy? And as hard as you tried, you just couldn't. In fact, it's even more of a challenge today because the target keeps moving. What is acceptable one day, the next day isn't. What was okay a generation ago is now off the board because what was acceptable then by society's standards today is to be condemned and destroyed. I think you know what I'm talking about. How often has our mindset and this bar that we were trying to live up changed because of the latest idea of the day or the cultural trends of our world. 
Is that what God wants? Is that how we're supposed to live our lives? Let me ask it this way. Can you really be free following that kind of philosophy? Or is it maybe time to take a step back and go, you know what? There's got to be a better way. And there is. It's called God's way. God has designed us in a specific way. And God has designed us to live a certain way. And God has designed us to want to do that. That's in deep inside of us just as much as the other one is wanting to rebel against God. See, the problem is, is when we follow our way and when the world takes its own shortcuts and when it follows everything it thinks is going to make it happy, at the end of the day it finds it's not. That's why it has to keep chasing more and digging deeper. And in the end it still doesn't find its true happiness. Sanctification is the only thing that can actually bring that back to us. It makes us happy to know that Christ paid for all our sins, but that's not all there is to us, this relationship with God and our faith. There's more for which God created us. In fact, Paul says that in that lesson, so that you do not do what you want. There's a natural desire with which God created us, and that desire is much like a child wanting to spend time with mom and dad, wanting to truly be in harmony with the creator, truly wanting to live in a world which the creator has made for us and be filled with joy. But the only way to get that fruit, the only way to really taste the sweetness of our hard labors to get there is through the process of sanctification. Simply put, there is only one way to actually unburden ourselves of the yoke, not only of the law, but of everything the law brings into this world, this broken world in the way in which it thinks and acts. we got to let it go. And I know, trust me, I know better than you, it's easier to say it than to do it. But at least we have to start with recognizing the fact that God asks us to do that, to unburden ourselves of all of these things, all of these sinfully human things, so that we're open and free to actually living by the Spirit. So that the less we expose to the way the world thinks, the more we're exposed to the way that God thinks. The less that we follow the world's design, the more we follow God's design. I don't mean to over, overly simplify this, but you really want to be happy? And, and the more and more, especially in my counseling, I'm, I'm finding myself say these things. Uh, somebody comes in with marriage trouble. Somebody comes in with family problems. Somebody comes in with another relationship problem. The only thing that I can finally tell them is there is a way that you can really be happy. There is a way for this to work. And it's not the way that we've been doing it. It's God's way. So let's you and I sit down and let's understand what God's way is. And when we understand that and follow it, that's the essence of sanctification. If I could share with you a truth that we are learning again and again through this series and something that I'm not only guiding you as your pastor, but something that personally, as I understand sanctification better in my own life and how easy it is to truly not just say the words but do it when we trust in Christ Jesus as our Savior... The essence of today's lesson and this pivot point in this study of sanctification is this. If you want to be free, if you want to really enjoy being free, then you got to let it go. We deserved death. But he died instead to break us free from the grip of death, taking our just punishment. But it doesn't end there. He left that grave and he lives again so that we may have a new life. 
do you understand? What do you say you believe? Yet your life looks the same. Nothing has changed. And maybe it hasn't. Maybe you're still trapped, still suffocating. He freed you. So why do you live the same life when his death gave you the power to live like him? So step out of the grave like he did towards Christ and he will make you like him and he will heal your every hurt. Change your life, renew your mind and open your eyes so that you can see the world for what it truly is. That the things you've worked so hard for are nothing, are temporary, and are crumbling with the stain of death. But you will taste and see the glory of God. Experience his life-changing presence. Nothing else will matter but him. And when the storms of life come, winds blow away your things, your money, the lightning strikes down your comfortable life, your health is washed away, and your relationships burn up. When you are left with nothing, nothing but the risen Christ, you will not be shaken. You will not be afraid. You will not fear, for you have the Lord and He is enough. He will give you peace, joy, love, faith, and no one can take it from you. That's what it looks like to believe. Do you truly